This is part two of our episode on prison theater and the global crisis of incarceration. We're continuing our conversation with Ashley Lucas, an associate professor of theater and drama at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor, and the director of the Prison Creative Arts Project. Ashley is the co-editor of Razor Wire Woman, Prisoners, Scholars, Artists, and Activists, and the co-author of a blog by the same name. She also wrote the play Doing Time, Through the Visiting Glass, which she has performed as a one-woman show since 2004 and which jump-started her career in prison theater research and performance. In part two of this episode, we discuss the lessons learned from using theater as a form of restorative justice and healing for incarcerated people, as well as the possibility of prison abolition and reforms that we can enact now. Take a listen. So my students who go into prisons each week with the Prison Creative Arts Project when we're not in the middle of a global pandemic will often tell you that going to prison is the best part of their week, that they have more fun there than anywhere else. And that's not as naive a statement as it sounds. It's not that my students don't see or experience the devastation or the horrors of what we do to people in prison. But when you get to a space inside a prison where people are ready to commune with one another, to do something positive, to share, and to be a part of a constructive collaboration. Everybody walks in the door really, really ready to begin, which is not the case in my university classroom (laughs) or any other theatrical rehearsal space I've been in in the free world. We walk in with all this baggage and our cell phones and we're tired and our bodies hurt and we're preoccupied about a jillion different things that are happening outside of the space that we share. When you go into a prison, you already went through so much. As a volunteer, you probably prepared months in advance to get security clearance, to plan out what you're going to do. You get searched. In Michigan, we have to take off our shoes. We get patted down. You kind of have to get not fully undressed, but you have to take off all these layers of things and let strange people touch you to make sure that you're not smuggling anything into the prison and then put it all back on. And then sometimes in Michigan, walk through the driving snow across the prison yard just to get to the point where you even see the people inside. And that's just our journey. The people who live there had to survive an entire week or months or years before they got to see somebody who was going to come in to take them seriously as artists and to really share something that day. So by the time all of us get into the same room, we are so ready. We're ready to be present and open and to do something that matters and to really listen to each other. And that level of attentiveness and that sense of being present that we like to talk about a lot in the theater where nothing else is distracting you, you're just living in the moment. That is automatically created by the prison in a much stronger way than any other social force that I've known. So when we do gather to do this work, the potential for real magic to happen is very, very high. Hmm. Were there any particularly magical moments in your work that you remember? I mean, are they, seems like their prisoners are pretty hungry to be sort of hands-on on every stage of the process. Like, are they often writing their own comedies or? Yes, I've seen all kinds of things. I've seen very serious dramas produced by people in prison, original devised work. 
most famously, and I was not old enough in the late 1970s, I was born in 79, so I was not old enough to see it on Broadway, but most famously in the United States, Miguel Pinheiro, who was one of the founders of the New York Poets Cafe, was part of a theater company called La Familia inside Sing Sing. And they developed a play together that he wrote and they produced inside and outside the prison with the incarcerated members of that troupe. And then eventually the formerly incarcerated members of the troupe, because they all came home in the late seventies. They produced a play called Short Eyes that Joe Papp produced at the Public Theater, which is a major, major theater in New York. And, And that's a very kind of serious and heavy drama. It does have some moments of comedy in it too, but the emotional range of what people create in prison is every bit as diverse as the theater in the free world. So I got to see some extraordinary things. When I visited Australia, there's an amazing company and one of the oldest continually active theater companies in a prison in the world is the Somebody's Daughter Theater Company, which is outside of Melbourne, Australia. And they work with women there. And I I love to talk about somebody's daughter just to say their name because it is the best name. Of, I mean, there are plenty of good reasons to talk about them, but their name is the best name of a prison theater company that I encountered because it reminds us all that everybody in a prison is somebody's child, somebody who was loved or who deserved to be loved and not just a discarded piece of humanity. And in Australia, very different from what we do here in the United States, more similar to what's happening in Canada, there is nationalized arts funding. So professional artists actually get paid through grants to do work in the prisons. So they were sending in like a professional director, professional acting coaches, professional music directors, professional set and costume designers to work with the women in this prison to make full-scale musical productions, original work that the women were putting together. And I got to spend a whole day in rehearsal with them working on one of their productions and to see how the women, because Australia, like a lot of places, locks up a lot of immigrants. And so there were women of many different cultures and they had each been invited to contribute a new song that the musical director helped them to develop an original song about who they were and what their culture was that sort of fit into the plot of a play about homelessness. And so it was actually a very joyous play, but it was grappling with some serious social issues. And because the women were from so many places, you had something that sounded like a musical that would be produced in London and the West End. You had a number that was hip hop based. You had a number that was kind of like a Romanian folk song. And the day that I was there, the Romanian woman taught us a traditional dance to use in the song. And they gave me the gift of letting me actually participate in the rehearsals and learn the dance steps and practice lines. I write about this in the book. There was a woman who had some cognitive impairment, most likely caused by medications that they were giving her at the prison. And she couldn't remember even the simplest lines. I worked with her for over an hour on the most simple bit of dialogue and she just couldn't retain any of it. And so we didn't get very far in that work that day, but we had a great time together. And then they said, okay, it's time to rehearse Gemma's musical number. And so the musical number, the premise was that she and her scene partner who was absent that day, and that's why I was filling in, were clowns. And one of the jobs that the women in that prison in Australia really do is to put on bright orange construction vests and hold the signs that say stop 
and go for people who are driving through a construction zone. And so our signs said, stop and go. And one of us was stop and the other one was go. And those were the only two words in the song. And they had created a song where she didn't have to be able to remember words, but she got to do all of these fabulous things. So we got to have kind of a sword fight with the signs. We got bored and we fell asleep holding them while saying stop and go. And we got angry. We got happy. We've just played with all of these different emotions based on what the music sounded like. But the only lines we had to say were stop and go. And she was marvelous. I mean, she was absolutely born to do clowning. And yet a lot of other people in a lot of other places would have looked at her and said, oh, I can't work with somebody who can't even remember basic dialogue in the theater. What are we going to do? And then I got to see a video of the show later on. And by that point, I think her medication had been adjusted and she could remember some lines. So she did have some real dialogue, but she was also just stealing the show because she was such a marvelous clown. And one of the things that prison theater teaches me over and over and over again is to value every person for who they are and where they are. That there is the potential for something beautiful and transcendent and absolutely delightful in every single person, no matter how much we've written them off, no matter what they've done in the world, no matter how guilty or innocent they might be. There is something beautiful inside of each person And I think the work of prison theater, certainly the work that we do at the University of Michigan with the Prison Creative Arts Project, is the work of finding what is right with people instead of what is wrong with them and celebrating that and cultivating it. It's just so moving to hear stories like that, just to think about how much room for joy there is in the world if we let it exist. And as an aside, clowning is really, really hard, honestly. So hard. (laughs) It just requires like a certain kind of physicality that does not come naturally to me, does not come naturally to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's highly commendable. Like clowning college, according to some of my actor friends, is actually incredibly competitive, despite their assumptions about what clowning even is. But (laughs) clowning is considered, I mean, I'm a theater professor and I teach in one of the most highly ranked theater departments in the country. We're very blessed to have a very old theater department at the University of Michigan and a very prestigious one. People like James Earl Jones and Dominique Morisseau, who's kind of an it playwright of the moment, an incredible writer from Detroit, came out of our department. And Arthur Miller was a graduate of ours. So the sort of rigorous traditional education of actors in my department's programming puts clowning at the very end. You don't get to clown until you're a senior because it's really, really hard. And then it's a huge deal for the students in the BFA acting program to have a clowning showcase at the end of the school year because they've had to earn it. It was really tough to get there and make it work. Yeah, it demonstrates how difficult it is sometimes to express yourself without any kind of dialogue that you have to communicate with people purely through the physicality of your body. And that's really hard. So, I mean, kudos to... That person, even though, as you said, maybe they remembered their lines after the fact, but either way, still really joyous to think about. And it reminds me, or it makes me think about, you know, something that we've just been talking about throughout this conversation, just like what the purpose of prison even is. And some people, obviously, including people in power, perceive it as this thing to punish, to condemn. And then on the flip side of that, some people perceive it as a place of 
restoration, of rehabilitation, of healing. Do you think that there are lessons to be learned in using theater as a means for restorative justice? Because restorative justice is such a part of the conversation about how we actually begin to rehabilitate people living within prisons. Yeah, that's a very, very complicated question for me. I have great hope for restorative justice. It's a super complicated thing to try to not only address harm, but prevent it from happening again in the future and to really give back to individuals and communities a sense of safety when there has been a terrible breach in the social order. The fact that I really care about people in prison does not mean that I ignore crime or violence or don't believe that it happens. And a lot of people would like to interpret the kind things that I have to say about people in prison that way. But that's not it at all. It is the sense that most people in prison, the overwhelming majority of them, were victims of significant crime prior to their incarceration. And they needed protection too at some point. So it's a vicious cycle of harm that we keep inflicting upon people. And prison is very much part of that. Prison does more to harm people than to heal. It is part of the cycle of violence against people who have already suffered violence, even before they perpetrated it or if they perpetrated it. So the idea of rehabilitation is complicated because it signifies linguistically, that we're trying to restore people to a place of habitation, to rehabilitate. And most of the people that I've known in prison came from a place that wasn't safe in the first place. They lived in homes or in lives where they didn't have the safety to just take care of themselves and be good citizens. Something else was happening that threatened them all the time. So we can't restore them to a place of habilitation because they didn't live in it before it happened. I have a friend who's a drama therapist who worked with kids in North Carolina in a youth detention facility. And she's a very open, loving person. She really cares about these kids. She wanted to work with everybody. And then somebody told her that one of the kids on her caseload was a serial sex offender, kid like 13 years old. And it really freaked her out. She didn't want to have to work with this kid, but it was part of her job. And she was very wary of him. She was frightened. She didn't know how to respond to his needs or how to approach what she could do to help him. And she judged him greatly because he had done some terrible things. And then she was called upon to do a home visit with his family as part of her work as a therapist in this facility, juvenile facilities vary quite a lot, but some of them are more permeable to the outside world than adult prisons are. People come in and out and sometimes spend the day in regular school and come back at night, things like this. So part of her job was to go make a home visit. And when she visited the home of this child who had been convicted of sex offenses, everywhere in the house, there was pornography. There were videos, there were magazines, there were things that children should not see. And this kid was clearly acting out upon other people, things that had been done to him. He abused other children, not knowing that it wasn't happening to everybody else and not realizing that there was a different moral or social order, that he should have been protected from that and that other people shouldn't be subjected to it. And I don't mean to suggest that all people in prison have a significantly skewed moral compass, but when violence is a part of your daily life, 
then you have to know and understand that there are different possibilities for you. One friend of mine who I write about in the conclusion of my book is a man named Pat Bates, who did a whole lot of theater for about five years before he got out of prison. And he was kind of a street thug. He had been a person who had experienced violence, who had been a drug dealer, who had committed acts of violence both before he went to prison and while he was in prison. And he was the kind of guy that the other men in prison would tell you sort of on the sidelines was never going to amount to anything because he wasn't ready to change his ways. And when he got involved in the theater, kind of like Gemma, the woman who was the extraordinary clown in the Somebody's Daughter Company, Pat is just, he has the best instincts for improv that you've ever seen on anybody. The man is completely captivating. He's really funny. He throws himself into the act of performing with total abandon. And it was the first time in his life that he felt that he was really good at something that wasn't negative because he was good at a lot of things that aren't good for people. He was good at violence. He was good at manipulation. He was good at things like drug dealing, but nobody had ever looked at him and said, wow, look at what you can do about something that was positive. And so being a part of the work in the theater really transformed him and made him want a different life. And then he started coming to my classes at the university and we read Angela Davis's book, Are Prisons Obsolete? And the idea of prison abolitionism was very troubling to him because from the time that he was 13 years old and started getting in trouble, he had felt that the world had nothing for him but prison. He had felt like that was his destiny and the only role that he could fulfill and that there were no other pathways forward for him. And getting involved at the university, becoming a researcher with a a network of people we've been calling the Carceral State Project, which is full professors, undergraduate and graduate students, and community collaborators all working together on these issues surrounding what carceral control means and how it operates in all different facets of our lives. That work made him know that he could be something different. But it was also, especially his first year home from prison, was intellectually very traumatizing for him because he was coming to realize in his late 30s that everything he had believed about what his life possibilities were had been wrong. That all along he had the potential to be something different than someone who goes to prison and commits acts of violence. So I'm sorry for such a long answer to this. It's just a very high stakes question and one that I think we need to be asking ourselves more. And the reason that I think the theater has such potential to help people have these kinds of revelations is because you have to do theater with other people. It must happen in community. I mean, I think the arts are a human right and they're good for everybody, but it is equally true that the arts are no better for people in prison than they are for any of the rest of us. I have had incredibly profound realizations and revolutionary changes of thought and incredible moments of healing in my own life by doing work in the theater. And we tend to insist that when we do the arts with people who are oppressed, particularly if they're in prison or homeless or have some obvious signifier of oppression, that we're doing it to rehabilitate people, that we're doing it to heal them or psychologize them in some way. And I do think the theater is healing, but I think it's just as healing for everybody who's free 
as it is for everybody who's in prison. It's just that people in prison have fewer opportunities to have access to the theater or the arts. Maud Clark, who is the founder and artistic director of Somebody's Daughter Theater in Australia, gets really agitated when people ask her about the healing or rehabilitative powers of theater because she says it's a classist notion that the arts would heal any category of people more than they would anybody else. I think that that realization that the work that we do with people who've been harmed is not so much about trying to change who they are or reprogram their behavior as it is giving them the full range of opportunity and level of support, compassion, recognition that we would give anybody else. This for me is a lot more about the failures of our educational system, the the immense toll that chronic poverty takes on individuals and communities, the immense toll of violence, not feeling safe in your home, having not enough food to eat, feeling like school was not meant for you, that school is a place where you go to be routed somewhere and punished rather than a place, as it was for me, of constantly expanding opportunity intellectually and creatively. The differences in how we treat people spiral out into all of these other things. And none of that is to say that violence is acceptable or should just be brushed over or that crime and harm are not real and present in our lives. But to take someone who has been severely harmed and harm them more, sometimes for decades at a time, or depending on where you are, we might go ahead and kill them in the name of justice. That just doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make any sense to me either. And two thoughts that I had when you were talking about that 13-year-old who was a sex offender. I mean, first of all, it's just apparent that abuse is passed on between generations and can often be perpetuated. So I don't think you're justifying people's acts, but just contextualizing why and how something happens. But on another note, what I was thinking about when you were speaking is just that violence from the top down, state-sanctioned violence just seems so natural to all of us, Mm -hmm. right? We demonize it on an individual level by putting people into prison. But as you were just talking about depriving people of healthcare, forcing them to go online to beg for money so they can afford a transplant Mm -hmm. or police crackdowns against black people or being put in the prison system because you can't pay court fees. That's all state sanctioned violence that we all seem to normalize and think is okay. But it seems like an aberration when it happens the other way around. And conversely, We ask, in order to deal with these systemic issues, we often ask to confront it with individual acts of care and empathy instead of trying to think about what the flip side of that would be. What would state-sanctioned state care look like? What would it look like if the state was practicing love and healing in the way that they ask individuals to? I mean, that could manifest in a lot of different forms, be it a universal healthcare system, for instance, or something else that you mentioned, which is prison abolition, perhaps. Do you think that prison abolition is possible? Do you support it? And do you feel that prison theater has some kind of role in it? Yes. Somebody said to me the other day that part of the problem with how social movements end up is that there's so much injustice that people get really angry and then you live in a place of anger and trying to stop these terrible harms by stopping the people who are doing the harms. And the core of this lesson was that you have to love your people 
more than you hate what's happening to them. So if we started from a place of love, from a place of really trying to build the world that we want to have and not just saying Trump is horrible. And and I do think he's horrible. And I think he bears a lot of responsibility for a great amount of harm that's happened during his tenure at the helm of our government. But that's not enough. My utter disgust with him and his behavior can't be the thing that fuels me to want to live in a new world. I have to love the people in prison. I have to love the families like mine who are struggling on this side of the walls. I have to love the children who are displaced by all of this. I have to love the people who have suffered violence and the people who have committed violence in order to get us to a better place. So it is possible because for a long time, we thought it wasn't possible to end slavery. But like slavery, prisons are not natural. They didn't just always exist. And so it is absolutely possible that we could live in a world without prisons. And I do think that theater can play a role in that. I spent much of my young adulthood feeling deeply guilty, absolutely hounded and grief-stricken about the fact that I had no desire to go to law school because in many regards, I would have made a really fantastic lawyer. I like to talk in front of people. I think quickly on my feet. I'm pretty good at argument and debate. I was a speech champion nationally in high school. I had all the markings of a great lawyer. And there was a part of me that felt like I should have done that, that I should have gotten a law degree and and used it to free my father and other people. But I so loathe courtrooms. I can bear prisons so much better than I can bear a courtroom. Courtrooms are the places where people lose everything and where lives hang in the balance and where the worst things that have happened in my life have happened. And I couldn't face losing for people who didn't need to lose in court. And I couldn't face kind of the complicity that it would have required me to exercise to be a constant actor in a system which in my life experience, very seldom delivers what I would consider to be justice. So I couldn't do it. And what I can do, what does fulfill me, what I can keep doing for a very long time, as hard and painful as it is to love people in prison and to walk inside prisons and see what happens there, I can go there to be the person who helps to bring joy, to collaborate with smart, interesting, fun, funny people, to make theater in community with people who are suffering is a thing that lifts my own suffering and the suffering of others. And Brian Stevenson, the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative and the author of Just Mercy, talks very poignantly and thoughtfully about the fact that one of the ways that we seek justice is by getting proximate to the people who live in the conditions that we'd like to remedy. So if you really care about what's happening to people in prison, you need to get to know them. You can't just care about them ideologically or from afar or theoretically. You have to actually spend time with people in prison. And the theater is a remarkable vehicle for that because even if you're not a theater maker and you never want to be one, depending on where you live in the country, you might be able to go inside a prison to see a performance. Or you might just be able to see a documentary. There are a number of really good ones about people making theater in prison. You might be able, through the theater, to feel a deep and empathetic connection with people who live in very different life circumstances than you do. And for the people who are in prison, 
I think the theater is an incredible staging ground, as Augusto Boal, the founder of the Theater of the Oppressed, would teach us to rehearse a different future, to rehearse the kind of world that we would actually like to live in. And what does that world look like to you? I mean, what does a world without prisons look like? And what does theater look like in a world without incarceration? Well, the theater part is easy. We've had theater all over the world at all different eras of human history for thousands and thousands of years in places of extraordinary oppression and places of much greater freedom. The theater will thrive and evolve and become something new and fabulous, even in this world where we can't be together in person or touch each other or breathe the same air. There's this whole new era of Zoom theater that's emerging that's super interesting and the young folks are leading the way and I'm really excited to see what happens next about how we use the liveness of theater to make people feel alive and connected even when we can't really touch each other or approach one another in the way that we normally would. So I'm not worried about the theater. I think that's going to be fine. The rest of the world is another question. I have a friend who did her dissertation research in Samoa, not American Samoa, but the the Samoa without a prefix that doesn't belong to us as a U.S. colony. And there, it's a very, very small place. So how you translate this to a bigger country remains to be seen. But they don't have prisons in Samoa. And my friend who lived on the island for at least a year, maybe longer, was living in a family where a man had killed his wife. And in the wake of that act of violence, the community came together and said, your, your penance is that you will live forever with the parents of your wife, with the parents of the murdered woman, and you will care for them above yourself. You will honor their life to as great an extent as you can as a way of attempting to heal our whole community from the act of violence that you caused. You will take responsibility for these people and you will provide them care rather than harm as a response to the harm that was done. And apparently for this family, as painful as that was, it was working, but it required a lot of work from those parents as well as from the man who had committed the act to be able to live with each other after such a horrific breach in their family life and the social fabric around them in what the community knew about them and thought about them as a family. But the whole community came together to foster that solution and to say, in a way, you know, not just he did a bad thing and he needs to be punished, but How does his life turn into an act that counteracts to the best extent that one can because we can't restore the life of the dead woman? How can his actions make the world a more healing place? And my good friend Shaka Sangor, who is a very well-known activist surrounding the carceral system in the U.S., he served 19 years in Michigan prisons about seven of those in solitary confinement. And when he came home from prison, he co-taught my classes with me at the University of Michigan for two years before he got so famous that he moved on to do other things. But he is someone who has been very public about the fact that he committed a murder when he was a teenager and that that's what sent him to prison. And he was a drug dealer and he was someone who was addicted to drugs. 
And now that he has his freedom again, and even while he had not achieved freedom and was living in prison, he dedicated his life after he got to a certain point of maturity and awakening in his soul. He dedicated his life to serving other people. And now he really tries to make sure that kids aren't going to go into prisons in the same way that he did. He does a ton of public speaking. His TED Talk has millions of views. He wrote an autobiography while he was still in prison that he was selling out of the trunk of his car when he first came home that helped launch him into this life of advocacy. But what he really believes is that because he was a person who did harm, the rest of his life needs to be about healing. And he more than anybody, or at least as much as the family that lost the man whose life he took lives with that act every day. And he can't change the past. He cannot fix that. And his incarceration certainly didn't fix it. But the work that he does now is in service of the greater world because he harmed not just that person and that family, but the whole community that was made to feel more unsafe, that fulfilled stereotypes about the dangers of black men And one of the most powerful ways that Shaka talks about all of this work is that he's a guy who has the capacity to look really tough, right? He's big, he's got dreadlocks, he's got these huge muscular arms. He could make a mean face if he wanted to and be pretty scary. I see him as a big teddy bear because he's a person that I dearly love. He's one of my closest friends. But I get how particularly people who might have a chip on their shoulder about black men might find him to be a scary looking person. He has tattoos and long dreadlocks and all of these things that could be a stereotype. But looking the way he does and having lived through all the things that he has, he also stands up in public and tells a lot of people that he shot somebody because he was frightened. And you very, very seldom find men, particularly men who are in prison or have lived through prison, who can say out loud to a whole bunch of strangers that they were scared. And that that's why they committed an act of violence as opposed to, I was tough, I would beat him down, I was going to prove that nobody was going to be better than me. You know, that kind of rhetoric that gets promoted so much in popular culture, he is working really hard to deconstruct that, not just so that people could see him differently, but so that we could have the potential to look at all of the people who we categorically stereotype as violent or threatening differently. That how you look is not necessarily a reflection of who you feel yourself to be or why you take the actions that you do. Most of the people I know who will tell you what a badass they are, are covering up the vulnerability that they actually feel. The fear and the ability to experience harm, and most of them have experienced severe harm prior to doing harm as Shaka had. I mean, gosh, I think delving into how masculinity potentially plays into all of this could be a totally whole other conversation. (laughs) Yeah. But that's what all we have time for. But I think the takeaway for me in all of this is that whether abolition happens or not, we need to be striving towards a system that prioritizes care and healing and community over harm, punishment and isolation. And this demands a huge amount of social responsibility. It demands forgiveness. And and most importantly, as you just said, I think it demands a whole lot of vulnerability from everyone. So I just want to thank you so much for this, Ashley. It's been very emotional and informative for me to listen to you speak about your personal experience with the incarceration system. But 
also just about your research. I think it's really inspiring. Thank you so much. I'm really honored to have been able to have this conversation with you. And again, I feel that I owe a great deal to Bloomsbury for giving me the ability to do this research and have a a worldwide platform because Bloomsbury does have worldwide distribution in English-speaking countries. That meant that I could actually send the book to people in prison in Australia and people in prison in England and all over the place in Canada, as well as my home in the United States, it's been really important to me that we have a way to get the book back to folks inside. And the fact that Bloomsbury has such a reach has made that a lot easier. And the one thing that I I wanted to add to the takeaways that you were so beautifully framing that I didn't talk about sufficiently, but that I deeply believe in, is that it not only takes love and vulnerability and a lot of social responsibility to make abolition possible, but it also takes a lot of structural redistribution of resources. The the money, the jobs, the investment socially and of many, many different kinds that we put into upholding the system as it is, is going to have to be completely redistributed in order for us to get to a place of greater justice. And that's complicated and it's going to take time. And even if we don't have all the answers just like the folks who managed to undo slavery in its formal sense in this country. We just have to keep moving towards it and find the answers as we go. We can't say that because we don't have a clear picture of exactly what abolition looks like that we can't work towards it. I mean, on a hopeful note, especially in New York with our Democratic supermajority, but just across the country, particularly in light of the civil rights movement that we've all bore witness to across the world, I think There are people now in power who are invested in that mission of redistribution and confronting the structural problems that we face. So I'm hopeful that something's going to change. I am too. I am both very concerned for the well-being of people in prisons right now and also very humbled and grateful to get to know them and to learn from all that they continue to teach me and my hope comes from those survivors who are helping us to better see what is needed in the world. Thank you, Ashley. We're so excited for you to read the books from all our amazing authors that we've talked to this season. Add Prison Theatre and the Global Crisis of Incarceration to your cart on our website and enter code PRISONTHEATRE21 at checkout. That's PRISONTHEATRE21 at checkout. This code is valid until December 31st, 2021.